Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So Micah chapter 7, last chapter of the book of Micah. And uh, here Micah is uh, speaking, and it's a prophecy of course, but he's speaking on behalf of of the nation of Israel. And what he's really doing, he's describing their miserable state of sin or the the, the consequences of sin that they are in. And so verse 1, it says, Woe is me, for I am like those who gather summer fruits, like those who glean vintage grapes. There is no cluster to eat of the first uh, first ripe fruit which my soul desires. So from the very beginning from the very get-go here Micah says woe is me and uh, of course now like I said he's speaking on behalf of Israel but again I think Micah like all of God's prophets or most of them anyways uh, they personalized the situations that they were in you know they they felt the burden of the sin of the people around them they they had compassion on the people that they were ministering to and so like many of God's prophets Micah I think is excuse me personalizing the situation he says i am like those who gather summer fruits now summer fruits of course the summer would be in the hottest and driest time of the year in israel and uh, it figuratively could also be describing a time of drought you know there's no rain and so if you can imagine there's not much fruit as well Uh, i am like those who gather summer fruits like those who glean vintage grapes and what that picture is, 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 you know, after a major fruit harvest, a major grape, uh, uh, grape harvest, now people are going through and they're trying to glean what's left. And uh, it says there, there's no cluster to eat. Basically, there's, there's very little left of fruit. It says there is no first, root, first ripe fruit to eat, which, is, uh, which my soul desires. And, uh, and so you just get this picture of this dryness, this lack of fruitfulness, this barrenness, and this lack of satisfaction that is being expressed by uh, Micah. That, that, that's the state of, this, of, this, of Israel at this time. And the Lord had warned them back actually just a few verses ago in chapter 6 of Micah that because of their sin, he said in one place, you're going to sow, but you're not going to reap. And in another place, he said, you're going to eat, but you're not going to be satisfied. And God's warnings are not empty threats. And now the nation is experiencing exactly what God said would happen. When, people, when God's people are in sin, there's going to be a lack of fruitfulness in their lives. There's gonna, they're not going to enjoy the work of their hands. There's going to be a lack of satisfaction in life, and their joy will vanish. And there's only one way you and I can be fruitful, and the Bible says it, and John is to abide in the vine, right? To abide in, in Jesus Christ. But Micah continues here in verse 2. The faithful man has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among them. They all lie and wait for blood. Every man hunts his brother with a net that they may successfully do evil with both hands. The prince asks for gifts, the judge seeks a bribe, and the great man utters his evil desire, so they scheme together. The entire nation here had become so corrupted by sin that righteous men were nowhere to be found. Now, of course, in every generation, God reserves a a faithful remnant. 
of, and, and that's people that have repented of their sins. They're, they've turned to him. They're trusting in him. They're walking according to God's precepts. But this is speaking, generally speaking, the entire population, by and large, has become corrupt. There's none faithful. There's none upright. And that word upright, it really means ethical. They're, they're not ethical either in the sight of God or in the sight of man. He says, uh, violence is widespread. Every man hunts his brother with a net. Now that's an interesting thing. Every man hunts his brother with his net. Um, I was looking up, you know, looking, kind of trying to do a little research on that phrase. And Adam Clark in his commentary, he says that this is a a picture of an ancient form of dueling between a man known as the, and I'm going to pronounce it probably wrong, retiarius, and another man known as the secutor. And I'm like, that, that caught my interest anyways. Well, the ret- retiarius, or retiarius, whatever, um, he would cast a net over the head of the secutor and then kill him with the sword. So they'd be like, they'd be like in this circle or something, and they'd have, and I'm assuming both of them would have nets and swords, and they would try to throw the net over the guy, and while the guy's you know, scrambling with the net, then they would get him and kill him with the sword. Um, and the secutor, the other guy, he would try to deflect that net coming, so you know, he'd be He'd be swinging his sword and trying to deflect the net from, uh, uh, you know, falling on his head. And if that retarius missed, then he would have to kind of run around while he's kind of gathering the net and kind of positioning it so he can throw it again. He'd be kind of running around and avoiding the secutor because the secutor is going to do the same thing with his sword, trying to kill him. So that's kind of what is being pictured here. Well, the idea being expressed is that each man was trying to ensnare their fellow brother in order to kill him or to destroy them. It's just, it's just the picture of what's going on. And it's interesting that he mentions their fellow brother. Of course, that could either be someone who literally is a brother, they have the same parents, or it could also be someone who has a common ancestry like the Israelites. You know, they all shared a common ancestry. Or even close friends could be considered their brothers. So in other words, these, these people are, are, are they're doing treachery among themselves. They're, they're being treacherous. It says they successfully do evil with both hands. In other words, they're skilled in the art of doing evil, and they don't sin half-heartedly, but with both hands. You know, it's interesting. You know, when we're in the world, when we're in sin before we come to Christ, or if we're in, you know, total disobedience, we kind of, sometimes we just dive in with both hands, we wholeheartedly commit sin. And then I've seen people that, you know, they come to faith in Christ and then they half-heartedly follow Jesus. It's like, it should be the other way around. And we should be half, we should be full, you know, completely serving the Lord. Well, these people, they were skilled and in the art of doing evil and they didn't do it half-heartedly. They did it with both hands. There was favoritism. There was bribery among the leaders and the judicial system. It says the great man utters his evil desire. In other words, you know, before it'd be like secret. I I wouldn't share those things because of shame, but now there's no shame. They are basically openly boasting about their sin. And they scheme together. You know, there's conspiracies. You know, when I'm reading this, I'm like, man, it sounds like our politics today. I mean, it sounds like our nation, doesn't it? You, do, you, can, you can really look at that. There's, there's very little shame anymore. People are boasting about their evil desires, their schemes. There's, there's bribery. There's favoritism. You know, you hear about uh, politicians that are, you know, people in leadership that are just getting away with all kinds of things that you and I, we, can't, we wouldn't be able to get away with that stuff. And, and so you look at that and you go, man, the, our nation is corrupt. 
Well, it's the time that Micah was experiencing. It was the time that Israel was, was living. It was a time of great corruption. And it really is a mirror, I think, of our society today, of our culture, of our nation. Verse 4, the best of them is like a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. The day of your watchmen and your punishment comes. Now there should be perplexity. In other words, they are as useless as a briar brush, you know, a thorn brush, basically. And they're as prickly as a thorn bush. In other words, they're good for nothing, and you can't even get near them without getting hurt by them. He says, the day of your watchmen and your punishment comes. Now, watchmen, were, it's referring to the prophets of Israel who foresaw judgment approaching. And basically what he's saying here, hey, the day that the prophets warned you about, it's here. It has arrived. Now there should be perplexity or confusion. You know, in Jesus in Luke 21, 25, it's talking about time on earth during the great tribulation. He describes what it will be like. And he says that that time is going to be a time when the nations uh, will be distressed with perplexity. They're going to be distressed with confusion. And, you know, I think we are starting to see more and more perplexity among the nations, more and more confusion. I mean, look at, the, look at our foreign policy, even as the United States. You look at the Middle East. I mean, you know, I don't think it's cut and dry. Who do you support in Syria? Do you support the Bashar Assad regime? You know, or do you support the rebels? And if you support the rebels, how do you know that they're not Al-Qaeda or ISIS rebels? I mean, it's like, it's so confusing, because of the easing of sanctions on Iran, you know what I just read this week? That very fascinating. Um, Saudi Arabia and some other nations have no formal dipl- diplomatic relations with Israel, but because of that sanctions, the the, the sanctions being eased on Iran and uh, and the nuclear agreement with Iran, Saudi Arabia is starting to align with Israel. They're, they've been having backdoor diplomatic relations, and and it's just it's. Uh, Netanyahu, the president of or the uh, prime minister of Israel, was talking about. It. He says, "You know, there is a complete seismic shift taking place in the Middle East geopolitically. It's confusing days right now. It's perplexing uh, what's happening on. People are scratching their heads in confusion. Well, I think the day of our watch, watchmen is fast approaching here as well. Verse five: Do not trust in a friend." Do not put your confidence in a companion. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your bosom. For son dishonors father. Daughter rises against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. Think how bad that is. I mean, no one can be trusted. You can't put your confidence even in your close friends or even in your family. He says, guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your bosom. I don't know how many of you read that book. I've, I forgot the title of it, but it's about Christians in North Korea. And what's fascinating to me is that born again, believing in Jesus, Christians in North Korea, and there are a few uh, that are there, they are afraid to even share their testimony with their own, with their own spouses. The, the one story I was reading about this, this, this guy, his parents were Christians. He was a Christian. He married this woman, and for many, many years, he was afraid to even tell her that he had faith in Christ because she might be a spy for the, for the government. 
And and can you imagine going through a marriage like that? And and it's common, I guess, in the in North Korea like that. But that's what it's describing. You can't even you can't even confide in your closest closest family members. For son dishonors father, daughter rises against her mother, daughter in law rises uh, daughter in law against her mother in law. A man's uh, enemies are the men of his own household. What this is picturing is just a complete breakdown of the family. Jesus warned his disciples that times like this, because he even uses these same words, would occur after he ascended into heaven. Well, it happened back in Micah's day. Um, I think we're heading into an unparalleled time in our culture. We're seeing the family unit completely being decimated, completely being destroyed. And, and we're going to get to this point where there's, you can't trust anybody. Everyone's against everybody else. Um, we're beginning to see, I believe, Paul's prophecy to Timothy uh, being fulfilled in our lifetime. Listen to this, 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves. No, they're not lovers of family, they're lovers of themselves. Lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. So, you know, those days are coming for, for our society as well. So with a complete breakdown of the family structure, of the complete pervasiveness of wickedness and unfaithfulness in the land, in the land where no one can be counted on. Look what Micah says here in verse 7. Therefore, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. I mean, what Micah's describing it sounds so bad. I mean, you can't even, you know, husbands and wives can't trust each other. People are, are betraying one another. Family members hate one another. And there's just a complete breakdown in the family. It's a terrible situation that's being described here where no one can be trusted and counted on. And maybe you felt that way in your own family or your own situation. It's like everybody's betrayed you. Well, it's a terrible situation. But when those times happen in our lives, God can use it to turn us back to him, where we're starting to look to him instead of men. So it's not always a bad thing. It is bad, but God can use it for good. God is faithful when men are not. He's the one who saves us, not man. Sometimes we kind of rely on men for taking care of our needs or relying on people or family members or whatever, but God's the one who saves us. And he hears the prayers of his saints. 1 John 5 verse 14 says this, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we ask of him. God hears us. And if we're praying according to his will, he, he, not only does he hear us, but he answers our prayers. So after acknowledging their sinful condition, after turning from men and turning to the Lord, Israel now proclaims, verse 8, to her enemies. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. And you know, whenever God's people stumble, 
the enemy gloats over them. Proverbs 24.16 says, For a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. We fall, we stumble, we make mistakes, we sin, but we get up again. We serve the God of compassion and mercy, a God who gives you and I opportunity after opportunity to start over. And although they are going to be punished for their sin because they're going to go into captivity, though they as God's people, they're going to sit in darkness. But it's not a total darkness, not a total absence of light. Why? Because God is going to shine light into their hearts. Remember the prodigal son? I mean, he went about as far away from his father as he could. He went completely, you know, the opposite direction of what he had been raised by his father. He was in the lowest place in his life, completely just, you couldn't get any lower than he had gotten. He was about as low as he could get. But when he was in that low state, remember he remembered the fellowship he had with his father. You know, God's the one that reminded him of that fellowship. God's the one that reminded him of, hey, this is where you, this is what you left. There was a guy in jail. I've shared this before. I, 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 he asked me to come visit with him one time, and I, I was sitting with him in jail, and, and uh, he was sitting in, in a type of darkness. I mean, he was paying the consequences of his, of his crime and of, of his sins, and, and he remembered the God of his youth. His mother had been praying for him. He remembered the God of his youth, and it gave him hope. Well, it was the Holy Spirit that was reminding him. Even in their darkness, God is going to shine light. Even when you and I have sinned against him, even when we have, by our own actions, placed ourselves in a place of darkness, God is still faithful. He hasn't abandoned us, and he's going to shine a light of hope into our hearts. Why? Because he's always calling his children to repentance. The Holy Spirit's mission is to continually point us back to Jesus. Praise God for that. He doesn't give up on us. Verse 9. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me forth to the light. I will see his righteousness. You know, there's a difference between being sorry for our sin and for the consequences that it's caused us. There's a difference between that and what Micah is describing here. What Micah is describing here is the nation is grieving over how they have sinned against the Lord. And because they've sinned against him, They're going to submit to his chastening. But they're going to trust in his mercy while they're doing that. They know that as they submit to his chastening, he's going to do a work of restoration in their lives because God's merciful and he's faithful. Jameson Fawcett Brown says this, The true penitent accepts the punishment of his iniquity. They who murmur against God do not yet know their guilt. Micah says, he will bring me forth to the light. I will see his righteousness. You know, because they've submitted to the mighty hand of God, they have confidence in his faithfulness. He is going to restore them from a place of darkness to light, and they're once more going to be in a place of fellowship with him. So even though they're going into captivity, even though they caused their sin, God hasn't forsaken them. He's going to, he's going to restore them in due time. Verse 10, Then she who is my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? 
My eyes will see her. Now she will be trampled down like mud in the streets. So when God restores Israel, her enemies will be shamed who gloated over her fall. And God's people will witness the destruction of their enemies. Verse 11. In the day when your walls are to be built, in that day the decree shall go far and wide. In that day they shall come to you from Assyria and the fortified cities and from the fortress to the river, from sea to sea and mountain to mountain. Yet the land shall be desolate because of those who dwell in it and for the fruit of their deeds. You know, after the Babylonian captivity, the people of Judah returned to the land the walls of the city of Jerusalem, they were broken down. The city was in shambles. When the Jews returned to the land of Israel in 1948, after being dispersed for 2,000 plus years, the land by and large was desolate. It, it was just a wasteland, basically, and it needed to be rebuilt, tilled, irrigated, whatever. You know, you look at the nation of Israel today, the land of Israel today, it's, it's a, taken an amazing, miraculous transformation. By the end of the Great Tribulation, the land of Israel is once more going to be decimated, but then God's going to begin a new work, and Jerusalem is going to be completely, completely, you know, refitted. It's going to, it's going to look amazingly different. Um, that's where the capital of the world is going to be, and Jesus is going to reign physically from there. You know, we, you and I, in our sin, we, cause, we, we commit our sins, whatever, it causes desolation around us. We're the ones that have brought it upon ourselves. But when you and I repent of our sin and we submit to the Lord's chastening, he can take what was desolate and rebuild those areas that sin's broken down in our lives. I mean, really, you women just went through the book of Nehemiah. That's what it's all about, rebuilding those walls that were broken down. Verse 14, Shepherd your people with your staff. The flock of your heritage who dwell solitarily in a woodland in the midst of Carmel. Uh, Carmel, not Carmel. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, let, <laughs> let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in days of old. You know, here Micah is speaking to the Lord. When God restores his people, he will once more shepherd them and feed them as he did in the days of old. They will once more be in a place of close communion with him. Verse 15. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them wonders. Now the Lord is responding after Micah has spoken. A restored Israel will once more see the hand of God working in mighty ways on their behalf. When God, when God delivered them out of Egypt, he miraculously delivered them. It was an amazing, miraculous delivery. He miraculously provided for them in the wilderness. He miraculously led them. He miraculously protected them. He even miraculously went before them. And he says, I'm going to do all that again to a restored people, to my people whom I restore. Verse 16, the nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall put their hand over their mouth. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall crawl from their holes like the snakes of the earth, and they shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of you. The great tribulation, the Bible tells us, is going to be so terrible. In Revelation chapter 6, it talks about when the sixth bowl of judgment is poured out on the earth, that men, I mean, it's like, the, it's going to be so terrible that men are going to hide under rocks and ask the mountains to cover them for fear of the Lord and his wrath. 
And just as when God led the children of Israel in the wilderness and into Canaan, the nations trembled because of the way that God miraculously led them. And they feared Israel as a result of that. And when Jesus ushers in the kingdom age, all the nations will be ashamed and they're going to fear Israel. They're going to respect Israel. And now we probably get to, I would say, probably the key verse of the entire book of Micah. And it's a play on Micah's name. Remember back in the beginning, we said Micah's name is, Who is like Yahweh? Who is like God? Verse 18, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. Who is a God like you? You know, there is no God like our God. All other gods are man-made. They're all, they're all out of man's imagination. They do not pardon iniquity like our God. Why? Because they're made in the image of man, and man's nature is not to pardon iniquity. Man's nature is to exact revenge. But our God pardons iniquity. That word pardons means to, care, to bear or to carry the guilt or punishment of sin. And this was beautifully illustrated to Israel every year on the Day of Atonement when they, put, they laid their hands and prayed. They confessed their sins over the scapegoat. And then the scapegoat, it bore the sins of the people and it was led out into the wilderness and set free never to return. It was beautifully illustrated in, that, in, the, uh, in the book of Leviticus with the scapegoat. Well, and it was completed in Jesus Christ. Because he bore your and my punishment for our sins on himself at Calvary. He pardoned our iniquity. Our God passes over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. Remember I said there's always been a remnant of faithful followers of God in every generation. And it's not based on people. God has reserved for himself a remnant in every generation. Those who have repented of their sins, they put their trust in his faithfulness. He passes over their transgressions, choosing not to mark them. Psalm 133 says, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But he passes over. Now, the child of sin, or child of God, excuse me, the child of God still, we still have a sin nature. We still sin, but I like what J. Vernon McGee says. When they do sin, God takes them to the woodshed until they repent. I don't know how many times you, you've been taken to the woodshed. I've been there many times. And, and, and you know, you've repented your sins. But see, the man or woman who has put their trust in the Lord for their salvation, their iniquities have been carried away by Christ. What, what a, there's no God like our God who pardons iniquities and passes over the, our transgressions. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. Man, I am so thankful God is not like man who hangs on to anger and resentment. God forgives us, and he doesn't forgive us based on you and I. He forgives us based on his nature. Why? Because he delights in mercy. You and I serve a merciful God. And there are people right now that would say, well, how can a merciful God send someone to hell? I mean, you know, it just seems like it seems like polar opposites. Well, the, the answer is, first of all, people don't get sent to hell. They sentence themselves to hell by rejecting God's mercy. God's handing, holding out his arms of mercy to, to people everywhere, always. 
And when they reject that, they send themselves there. God has given each and every person an entire lifetime to respond to his mercy. Now, if during their lifetime they have not responded to his mercy, then mercy ends and judgment begins. But God is fair. I mean, look at that. He's given you your entire life to turn your life to him. Now, the only thing is, you don't know how long your life is, so there's, you know, there's that unknowing part of it. But, you know, even in judgment, God is merciful. He's like a surgeon, you know, removing the cancer of sin in order to spare people. Even in God's judgment, he's merciful. Verse 19, he will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Sounds like a song we were just singing, a little worship song. You know, the children of Israel, they are going to be punished. They are going into captivity. They need to submit themselves to a merciful and faithful God. But because God delights in mercy, they can trust in his compassion. That word compassion, it, it, it says this, the word pictures a deep, kindly sympathy and sorrow felt for another who has been struck with affliction or misfortune, accompanied with a desire to relieve the suffering. That's what compassion is described as. What's even interesting to me is it doesn't matter if the affliction is self-inflicted or not. Compassion is still you know, sympathy and sorrow and a desire to relieve the suffering. You know, it's your and my nature. It's our human nature. When we see someone who's just completely blown it and they're starting to bear the consequences of, of their, their actions, their sins, we basically, our attitude is, well, they deserve what they get. But that's not God's compassion. It's God's nature to be compassionate. Psalm 103.13 says, As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. Those who recognize God's holiness and acknowledge their sinfulness. He pities them. Proverbs 28.13, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Those who confess their sins and then they repent, in other words, they turn away from them, they're going to have mercy. It says, He will subdue our iniquities. To subdue means to bring into subjection or to enslave it. It means basically to overcome or to subdue someone or something. And sin enslaves people. People become slaves to sin. They become in subjection to sin. They become overcome by sin. But you see, Jesus Christ overcame sin. He conquered it and has dominion over it so that it no longer has dominion over you and I as believers. That's why Paul writes in Romans 6.14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves? Um, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. God has subdued our iniquities so that we are no longer subdued by them. We are no longer under, under the power of sin anymore. We've been set free from that. 
says, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. I was kind of curious, how deep is the ocean? Of course, it varies depending on where you are. But the deepest place in the ocean, I bet you Jay knows this being a pilot. The deepest place in the ocean is known as the Mariana Trench. It's in the Pacific Ocean near the Mariana Islands near Japan. Its deepest point is 35,797 feet below sea level. It's almost 36,000 feet below sea level. That's how deep the deepest that they know of, the deepest trench in the ocean. To give you an idea of the depth, if Mount Everest were placed in that deepest part of that trench, there'd still be over a mile of water above its peak. That's how deep it is. And because it's so deep that the pressure at the deepest part of that trench is over eight tons per square inch. Everything just gets crushed when it's down there. It's amazing. Well, God removes our sins so far from us, he casts all of them into the Mariana Trench. And, you know, as Corey Ten Boom, I, I believe it was her that once said this, God casts all our sins into the depths of the sea, and then he puts, she, he puts up a no fishing sign <laughs> so that we can't go back, we can't dredge them up. They're so far down there, you can't even get them. You can't even go down to get them. And he won't even dredge them up. That's the kind of God we serve. Who is a God like our God? Micah 7 verse 20 says, You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. You know, the Bible gives us the truth about who God is and who we are in relation to him. I'll be honest with you, sometimes that truth is very fearful, but if it weren't for God's mercy. I read about God's holiness, and I read about my unholiness, and it strikes fear in me. But because of God's mercy, he's gracious and he's compassionate, and he's faithful. He's gonna con- uh, he will fulfill his covenant promise to Israel, and God is faithful to fulfill his covenant promises to you and I. What are his promises? 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Paul, who confessed his sins, put his trust in Jesus Christ, he lived his life, basically, he lived his life as a, as a drink offering. It was completely poured out. It's a drink offering. That was the offering that you took and you basically laid it on the fire and it just evaporated on, in, the, in the heat of the flames completely just expended in the, in the fire. And Paul says, that's my life. I, I've completely expended my life for Jesus Christ. And, you know, he was in prison several times. He was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He was mistreated. He went without food many times. He, he, was, he was under, uh, you know, he was, people told lies about him. He was disrespected. I mean, everything imaginable, he poured his life out. And he says this at the end of Second Timothy, or in Second Timothy, his last epistle. He says, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him until that day. And God is faithful. And who's a God that we serve? It's a, this is the God that we serve. And so uh, with that, we're ending our study in Micah chapter 7. And in fact, our study in all of the book of Micah. Um, who is a God like our God? And we saw it in so many different ways. But what a fitting way to fit, finish the, the book. Who's a God like our God pardoning iniquity? I'm so thankful for God and for his for, forgiveness. 
Next week, we are going to uh, start a study in the book of Titus in the New Testament. So I'm kind of excited about that. So next week, if you want to read ahead, uh, just start reading and meditating on the book of Titus, and then you'll be one step ahead of the game next week. So why don't we go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this, uh, this morning. Lord, we thank you for the study in your word. We thank you, Lord God, that you are not like us. Lord, that you are not like man, Father, that you are, there is no God like you who pardons our iniquities, who has compassion on us, who, Lord, even when we've sinned, even when we're in the consequences of our sin, we can trust you. We can trust in your faithfulness as we submit to your chastening, Lord. Father, I pray for each and every person here today. I pray that they are encouraged this morning, Lord, that uh, they are encouraged to completely entrust themselves in your compassion and in your faithfulness. And so, Lord, we just thank you for that reminder this morning. Lord, I pray your blessing upon your people this day, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.